You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Acts chapter 27. When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramatium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we'd sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Then, we, then there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salomon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end in disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest in winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they'd obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they'd taken on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God by whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that God, I believe God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they'd gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. 
Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they'd let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day, and you've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he'd said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he'd broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship around in the prow aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern had been broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. A magician was working on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. The audience would be different each week, and so the magician allowed himself to do the same tricks over and over and over again. There was only one problem with that. The captain's parrot saw the shows week after week, and he began to understand how the magician did every trick. Once he saw that, He began to shout out the answers to all of the tricks. He'd say, look, it's not the same hat. Or, look, he's hiding the flowers under the table. Or, hey, how come all the cards in the deck are aces and spades? The magician was furious, but he couldn't do anything. After all, it was the captain's parrot. One day the ship had an accident and sank. And the magician found himself on a piece of wood in the middle of the ocean with the parrot, of course. For two weeks, they just stared at each other with hate and didn't utter a word. This went on day after day, one after another. And finally, the parrot said, okay, I give up. Where's the boat? (laughs) Chapter 27 is a recount of Paul's Mediterranean cruise. And the chapter will end with he and his fellow passengers floating on pieces of driftwood. It was what they call a cruise to refuse, a cruise with a bruise, a cruise with the blues. But the good part of it all was it was a free cruise paid by Caesar Nero himself. Early on in Paul's life, it was told to him by Jesus that he would be a witness and carry the gospel before kings. And before Gentiles, the emperor of Rome, Caesar Nero, was both 
a king and a Gentile. So how was a little guy like Paul supposed to stand before the great ruler of the Roman Empire? God sovereignly worked through persecution in Paul's life to get him a free ticket to Rome. Through a Jewish scuffle and some Jews, that, uh, some Jews in Jerusalem had brought to Paul, Paul was taken to trial before a few Roman governors and King Agrippa II himself. For two years, he sat in trial in Israel. Until finally, he said in chapter 25, verse 11, I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he had the right and couldn't be refused. And so Festus, the Roman governor, when he'd heard it, said, You've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And so here in chapter 27, Paul finally boards the ship. Hearing the call, all aboard, Paul and many other slaves, many other prisoners, are loaded up onto a vessel. We see in verse 1 that a man named Julius, a centurion, a commander over a over hundred men, was given control over Paul and these other prisoners. And as we look at this, what seems like such a disaster here in chapter 27, we're going to see God's sovereignty over the whole situation and bring application to our lives that in the storms of correction, in the storms of perfection, and in the storms of destruction that we go through, God is just as sovereign. God is just as in control. We see his sovereignty in this man, Julius, the centurion, being brought to command and lead Paul to, to Italy. We see in verse 3 that Julius was a kind man. Later on, we'll see that he saves Paul's life from being killed by the other soldiers. We see that he allowed Paul to go into uh, the town there and to receive aid and to receive help, receive comfort from his friends. God was sovereign over this ship. God was sovereign even before the stone, storm started. This man, Julius, who we read about in verse 1, was of the Augustian regiment. He was really high up in the soldier totem pole. In fact, he was one of the personal permanent bodyguards for the emperor. God's sovereign in bringing this, this smart, intelligent man into Paul's life. As they board this ship from Adratium, you read of in verse 2, this friends are with Paul on the journey. We read of Aristarchus and we read of Luke. Some people think that perhaps Luke and Aristarchus were stowaways on the ship, that they pretended to be slaves just to get on board. Others believe that they paid their way just to be alongside of Paul the whole time. But as we look at Aristarchus, a guy that we read of a few times in scripture, we read that he was a good guy to have around. And mostly it was during trials that Aristarchus was with Paul. When the chips were down, you wanted Aristarchus there. We see in Ephesus, he takes it on the chin during the uh, Ephesian scuffle where he's brought into the giant Colosseum and it looks like he's going to be torn apart by 25,000 people. And yet he's there and he doesn't deny the faith. We read of him there in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. We read of him in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. We know Colossians was written from a, Rose, a Roman prison cell. So where does that tell us that Aristarchus was with Paul? A fellow prisoner 
in a Roman prison cell. But in verse 3, we read of this kind treatment of Paul by Julius and the, the comfort of the friends that Paul had there. Perhaps these are friends that at once were enemies that were driven north in Israel in Acts chapter 8 when Paul was Saul and he went on a rampage murdering Christians and dragging them off to prison. And it says that Christians were spread throughout the region and spread up to this area of Sidon. Perhaps these are people that used to be Paul's enemies and now they're giving him aid as he's a fellow brother taking the gospel to the farthest parts of the world. Because really in the book of Acts, we have Acts chapter 1 verse 8 laid out in full where the Lord says, you'll be witnesses of me in Judea, that's Israel and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And as we're one chapter from the end of the book of Acts, we're there at the uttermost parts of the world. Paul's on his way to Rome. We notice that this trip seems to be met with difficulty early on. And by verse 7, we read that many days it took to get to Snidus, and they arrived there with difficulty, and then they passed it with difficulty, and they came to a place called Fair Havens. Sounds kind of nice, huh? Sounds kind of like a place that you'd want to retire to. Fair Havens. And yet even then, there was dangerous sailing in verse 9, you read, that there was a fast going on. And Paul was fasting, and at the end of the fast, there seems to be danger. This fast that he speaks of is actually Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. It's the only feast where they would actually fast. It tells us the time of the year that it's autumn, that it was late, and that sailing wasn't impossible, but it wasn't exactly advisable. And so through verses uh, 10 through 12-ish, you see there's just this debate on, our, should we stay or should we go? You know, Should we stay here in Fair Havens, which seems like a nice place, or should we go to Phoenix, which has an opening to the southwest? And most of you are thinking, Phoenix sounds nice, right? It's in the southwest, and hopefully you're, you know your geography to know we're talking about a different Phoenix. You know? We're talking about uh, the Phoenix of the Mediterranean. Still, probably you know, a nice place to stay, but can they make it that far for the winter. Are we going to go 40 miles or are we going to stay here? And Paul's advice was to to stay. Verse 13 tells us when the south wind blew softly, supposing they'd obtained their desire, they put out to sea and they sailed close by Crete. It seems like this is perfect sailing weather. Anybody here a sailor? You kind of under I, I have no clue what how to sail, nothing like that, you know, but you know, it seems like this is just a good, gentle wind, an autumn wind that should get us there safely. But by verse 13, it's not looking good. It's looking like a white squall, you know, it's looking like a tempestuous headwind is rising up out of the sea. In fact, we're going to give it a name of a monster. We're going to call it Euroclidon. Doesn't sound good, does it? Read this week of a, of Two people out sailing when suddenly a hand appeared in the sea and the skipper of the boat said, what is this? Turn the boat around. It looks like somebody is drowning. When the crew got a look at it, they said, no, explained his crew. It's just a little wave. There's a hand in the sea. It's just a little wave. Okay. Here we don't have just a little wave. We have a Euroclidon. We have the words tempestuous which the Greek word is typhonicus, which is where we get our word typhoon. 
A gentle wind quickly turns into a hurricane, quickly turns into a typhoon. And this ship, verse 15, is caught. You couldn't head into the wind, and so they just said, let's just let it go. You know, talking with some horse guys this week, and myself, you know, being raised on a ranch, I was at the racetrack, and I was talking with this uh, Warm Springs Indian judge, actually, and uh, attempting to witness to him, looking for those opportunities to share Christ, and we were both raised on ranches, and we just got talking about, man, when those horses just want to run back to the barn, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is just let them run and spur them and just let them go until they get tired, and then they'll just get pooped out, and you can turn them back around and head them back the right direction, and uh, I think they're thinking the same thing with this ship, just let her go, it'll be over soon enough, you can't fight it, just let it go. And so they did. They let it go. They let her drive. And that was difficult as well, you read of in verse 16. They had to actually, by 16, make a life raft available. Get the little, uh, little life raft ready for the, you know, probably the important people on this ship. By verse 17, they have to wrap the ship to keep it together. Sounds like a boat you want to be on, right? Well, what we're going to do here is we're going to take cables and we're just going to wrap the ship up. So hopefully, oh goodness gracious, you know, get me on the lifeboat, you know, that's where I'd want to be. In verse 18, they lighten the ship. And by verse 19, they throw the ship's tackle overboard. They don't want to be taken down to the Sirtis Sands because that's a place of quicksand. Man, they're just, they're really just, you know, grabbing onto this boat with their fingernails and just hoping to survive. And then we get to verse 20. Seems to be just the real change in the atmosphere on the ship. It says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. You know, at the beginning of the chapter, we hear of all aboard. But by chapter 20, it's all over. It's all over. I mean, you can just picture the, the prisoners looking into each other's eyes going, man, this is it. This is it. It's over. This is horrible. You can picture the, the Roman soldiers and the centurion Julius and just kind of just saying, man, it, it's done. This is our fate. This is the end. Perhaps even Paul, you know, looking over at Luke and looking at Aristarchus and just saying, guys, How's the Lord going to get us out of this one? You know, Luke, just faithfully keeping his journal of the events, just, we had lost hope. We lost hope. You know, back in the days, navigation was based upon the stars, was based upon the sun. There were no stars. There were no sun. There were just these massive waves that were beating this boat to smithereens. You hear of these stories of miners trapped down in the earth. And just them just looking at each other and saying, it's over. And scribbling notes to their families. You read of warriors and soldiers off in distant lands and outnumbered. And just knowing they're going to be overrun and just looking at each other and saying, man, get your last bullets together because this is it. We're going to be overrun. Today, as I was getting ready, I was, uh, I had my iPhone downstairs with me in my office and I have Fox News alerts sent to my phone and at about... 8.30 this morning, I got an alert that a stadium in, I believe, Norway collapsed upon people, and people are stuck under a stadium right now. We can be praying for them. Just no doubt, people just think, man, this is it. 
We're trapped under this stadium. We're probably going to die. It's hopeless. And Paul on this boat, just looking at the trial, thinking, Lord, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Have you ever thought of that? Does it sound like you right now? The state of the economy. You know, the state of your bank account right now. The state of your health. The tumors you've been told you have. The state of your relationship with your kids. Just seems like, man, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. The state of your marriage. Man, we've tried girding our marriage with cables to try to keep it together. And it just seems like we're going to bust apart. Does it seem like it with your job? Does it sound like you right now where all hope that you will be saved is finally given up? Does it sound like you right now in the current state of your holiness? Are you just struggling with a sin right now that just seems to be holding you captive? And all hope of being delivered from it has finally been given up? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes, Man, I don't want you guys to be ignorant of the troubles that I've gone through, especially in Asia. We, it says, we were burdened beyond measure and above strength. And he goes on to say, so that we despaired even of life. You know, Paul's ministry was just marked with storm after storm and trial after trial despairing even of life. He goes on to say, it was like we had the sentence of death just within us and just oozing out of us. No doubt, this is one of those times as he's on this ship just being tossed around and, you know, people lost their lunch many days ago. It's, it's gone beyond being seasick. It's, we're going to drown. We're going to sink. Just another storm that Paul would be in. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 of all the trials that he goes through. And one of those is that he had been shipwrecked three times. And he'd spent a night and a day in the deep. And one of the things I was thinking of as I read this chapter, by the end of the chapter, just one of the prominent thoughts in my mind <clears throat> was the way that Paul hazarded his life for the gospel. I mean, can you miss it in the book of Acts? Can you miss it that from the, the beginning, from when he was saved, he's led out of a Damascus wall and a basket, and he writes about it being the most humiliating moment in his life. You read of him being arrested for casting a demon out of a girl, and he's flogged for it. And he just keeps on going. You read of Paul trying to be a good Jewish boy in Acts chapter 21 and just take a vow to just perhaps have some peace with people in Jerusalem. And he goes into the temple to just worship the Lord. And he gets mobbed by angry Jews who beat the snot out of him so that a Roman guard has to come and rescue him. You read of him spending two years in a prison in Caesarea with a bunch of Roman governors that just want to please other people. They care nothing of Paul. They just want to please others. And if Paul would have just said, man, you guys, let's just, just let me go, okay? I mean, two different times his judges said there's nothing to keep him on. And yet Paul, wanting to get the gospel 
to Rome, to Caesar, says, you know what? I don't want to be let go. I don't want to be freed. I appeal to Caesar. So that even his judges say, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you'll go. I don't even have a portfolio to send with you of any crimes that you've done. You want to go to Caesar? You're going to Caesar. Herod even saying, man, if this guy had appealed to Caesar, he'd be free right now. And then he gets on this boat, an Alexandrian vessel we read of, that's full of grain, that's going to feed Rome's fat bellies and a, and a, and a ship full of 200 and something prisoners that are going to go and just be gladiators for the Romans entertainment. And Paul says, I want to go there and I want to witness Jesus to that group of people. Would you say he hazarded his lives, his life for the gospel? That just was prominent upon my mind. And then I was just disgusted by the lack of that in my life. And the lack of that in our church's life. Not only not hazarding our lives for the sake of the gospel, but just walking out into the community and opening our mouths about Jesus. This is me too. Went to the horse races on Thursday night to share Jesus and came here in prayer for 40 minutes with about six other people. And we prayed that we'd be empowered and just go to the horse races to just share Jesus with people and talk to four different people, had great conversations and just never got the, the Jesus out. What are you going to do with Jesus? You're a Warm Springs Indian judge and you're a nice guy, but you're going to hell, man. Not only not wanting to hazard my life for the gospel, not wanting to have a sour look cast my direction. You know, it's just interesting when you look at Facebook and there's posts out there about, you know, whatever. (laughs) You guys know it, you know. People are posting, man, I went to Starbucks today. It was awesome. Great, man, that's awesome. 15 posts under that. I went to Starbucks today. That's great. Oh, wow, that's great. I've been to Starbucks before. Me too. It's the best coffee company in the world. 30 messages under that. And your pastor puts a post on Facebook that says, please come to the horse races tonight so we can tell people about Jesus. Not a response. No guilt trip. Maybe the Lord wasn't leading you there. And that can be the case. But just, guys, we want to be out amongst the lost so we can tell them about Jesus. It's the best thing that they could ever hope for. And they're going to hell and they need redemption and they need restoration. And some of you aren't called to do that Thursday night and that's okay. So there's really not a guilt trip. But just, you know, where's our priorities and where are our focuses? And are we living missionally out in the community? Are we living just everything that we do? It's for the sake of telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, just correct us where it's wrong. I just, I look at the guy, Paul, 
And I see a guy who forsook it all, and I'm not even close to that. So don't be condemned, because I'm not even close to that. Man, may we pray today for the power of the Spirit upon our lives to hazard our lives like this. Because Paul was doing it so much so, he hated life. He despaired of life. And I know I'm going to tell these people about Jesus and they're going to persecute me. They're going to give me more than a sour glance. They're going to throw me in chains and they're going to beat me up and they might even kill me. But Paul was faithful to that call of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. That commission to be a witness and to make disciples. It is in this chapter that we're Reminded of the storms in the Christian life. You know, certainly Paul was going through it. And certainly Paul went through it more than once. And Paul remembered the promise from Jesus back in chapter 21, where Jesus said, you know, don't worry, Paul. I'm going to get you out of Jerusalem and I'm going to get you to Rome. And you are going to share with Caesar. Don't worry. And yet here he is being tossed to and fro on a ship. And, you know, he's, he's probably beginning to just wonder. Maybe not worry, but really wondering, Lord, was I schizophrenic that night in the Jerusalem prison? Kind of reminds me of the disciples in Mark chapter 4. And, you know, the storm is tossing them all around. And where's Jesus? You know, he's sleeping on a pillow. And they yell out to Jesus, Teacher, don't you even care that we're perishing? Don't you even care? Of course, Jesus cared. Of course, Jesus was in the midst of it all. But as we look at these storms, we just, I just was reminded also of just different storms that men of God had been in in the scriptures. In uh, Jonah's life, we see the storm of correction. The storm of correction and And uh, we're going to see the storms of perfection. But in Jonah's life, Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, or Jonah chapter 1, we see that God had called Jonah to go and and preach the good news and a message of repentance in Nineveh. Go preach the good news in Nineveh. And uh, he didn't want to go. These guys were pagans. And so he went down to Joppa and he got aboard the ship. And he set sail to Tarshish, which was in the exact opposite direction. And it says there in Jonah chapter 1 verse 4 that the Lord sent out a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest upon the sea. So that the ship was about to be broken up. The Lord had caused this sea. He had caused this typhoon that these guys had gone, that they were going through. And so eventually, you know the story, they cast lots and it came to be that Jonah was the one responsible for this storm. And so they cast him into the sea only to be swallowed by a great fish that the Lord had prepared to swallow Jonah. And don't let that trip you up because remember last week, if the Lord is big enough to create the heavens and the earth, then he's big enough to prepare a fish that can keep a guy alive for three days. So don't let that trip you up. As Jonah was in the hotel, you know, free willy for a couple of days, three days and three nights to be specific. <clears throat> you just see, you know, that the, 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 the prepared fish goes and vomits him up onto land. 
you know, three days of being in a, in a fish with indigestion, you know, those stomach acids and the seaweed wrapped around your head and just the misery. And yet Jonah was just stiff neck, arms folded, hard heart, had to be spit upon the dry land towards Nineveh. And you just see, you know, there's an easy way to get to Nineveh and there's a hard way to get to Nineveh. Go the easy way. <laughs> Go the easy way, lest the Lord bring some correction into your life, some storms of correction. As Psalm 32 tells us, David tells us, you know, in verse 8, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I'll guide you just with my eye. I'll guide you to Nineveh. I'll guide you to the horse races. Or I'll guide you to the farmer's market where you could be around people and share with people. Or I'll guide you to the oasis or wherever, you know. I'll guide you with my eye. I'll lead you. I'll show you where to go. But don't be like the horse and the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near to you. You know, the Lord can guide you with his eye, or he can put the bit in your mouth. You know, it's funny because we were at the horse races. I'm standing at the front gate closest to the, the races. <clears throat> and uh, one of the horses got out of the gate and it just starts sprinting. And this jockey is just up on this horse. And, you know, I raised on Western saddle, you know, and kind of, you know, real comfortable. And, you know, I just, the guy rode by and this horse, he can't get it to stop. And he's on like stirrups that are this long, you know, he's just like, He's just in a squat position and he's just, he's kind of standing up under the horse then. And I was like, man, I could not ride with those short stirrups. And this little guy next to me goes, it's the only way to ride a racehorse. And I was like, oh, you know all, huh? You know, whatever. <laughs> Turns out this guy is a jockey. He's been a jockey his whole life and actually was the trainer for the horse that won the third race. But, and he's like, yeah, don't you know that like, if you stand up on a horse and you raise the reins up and you get the bit to go straight up into his mouth, you can like drop them to the floor. I was like, I never knew that in all my, you know? And, uh, and so just reading this, I'm like, man, Lord, I just want to be that horse. That's like, you just kind of guide me with your feet. You know, I'm going to go this way. I'm just going to go wherever you want, Lord. I don't want the Lord to stand up and raise the reins up high and just drop me. Like he ended up dropping Jonah. We see these storms and we see these guys despairing of life in chapter 27. They're just giving up hope of life. And it's just a good reminder that don't give up. You know, as Paul says in verse 22, take heart and be encouraged. And he actually encouraged that is them in verse 36 of chapter 27. Be encouraged. Even if you're in the midst of a correction storm, even if you're in the midst of being, you know, the bit and the bridle, you know, being turned in that manner, be encouraged. Get your eyes on the Lord and ask him, Lord, what are you doing in the midst of this storm? Is this a storm of correction? You know, Peter's an example in Matthew 14, 28 of you know, they're in, they're in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and the wind and the waves are beating on the boat. They think they're going to die. They're struggling. And Jesus comes out and walks on the water. And first they think that Jesus is a ghost and they're freaked out about it. And then they realize it's the Lord. And Peter shouts out, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out onto the water. And so Jesus says, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water. Incredible, going to Jesus. 
But then it says that when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? You know, that storm is just an example of get your eyes off the storm and get your eyes on to Jesus. Peter was doing great when he was walking on the waves and he had his eyes fixed on Jesus. But then when he looked around, he saw that the sea was boisterous. He began to sink. And oh, how we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and off of our situation. Because you might be in a place where you're despairing of life. Perhaps you're suicidal. Reading of some 31,000 suicides in the United States. In 2006, that was the most recent uh, stat I could get, 31,000 suicides. That shows us that there are people in this world that are in despair, that are going through boisterous situations that, that man, they, they are in agony. But their eyes are on themselves, and their eyes are on their current situation, and their eyes are not on Jesus. In Psalm chapter 73, you have the writer telling us that he's just really frustrated that he's following after the Lord and he's going into the synagogue and he's worshiping Yahweh. And then he looks out there and he sees all the people in the world that are just like idol worshipers and filthy sinners, you know, and it seems like they're prospering. You know, they have the new shiny donkey with the new, you know, PX 3000 saddle on it or something, you know, and just... How come he has that? I'm the follower of Yeshua, you know? And, you know, oh, just looking at... mm, And it says he's frustrated by that. And he goes on and on about his frustration. It seems the world is prospering. And And it says, So much so, it was almost too much for me to bear. It was almost too much for me to bear. Just an agony over this. And then it says, And then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. And when he was in the sanctuary of the Lord, there was perspective given to him. You know, that though there's pleasure in sin for a moment, they're going to stand before a holy God and they're going to be judged. And maybe you, you've got these storms going on, you've got these frustrations, you've got these hurts, and it's just almost too much for you to bear. Get your eyes on Jesus. Go into the sanctuary and spend time with him. You know, you read of these suicides, and suicide is one of the most selfish things that a person can ever do. And if you're thinking about it, don't. Because you're not thinking about your family, your wife or your husband, your kids, your cousins, the co-workers that you're with. You're not thinking about anybody but self. And I've been through that. I've walked through a dear... With you know, a suicide with a dear friend of mine whose brother killed himself. And just to be with him for the last six years... And to watch him mourn and grieve and hurt. But to see that, man, people are only thinking about themselves. And no wonder there's anguish. Get your eyes on Jesus. Even if you're going through a storm right now and it's a storm of correction like Jonah, get your eyes on Jesus. And you'll come to know that because he loves you, he's letting you go through a storm of correction. Because he loves you. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 tells us that, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? 
My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. And then he goes on to say, if you endure these corrections, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we all have been, uh, become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. He goes on to say, man, we have all had fathers who've corrected us. They love us. How much more your heavenly father? Shouldn't he correct you? Shouldn't he bring the storm into your life? And so first of all, those of you that are going through storms, man, pray about, is the Lord correcting you in this? Is the Lord chastening you in this? Are you despairing of life in it? Then get your eyes on the Lord. Perhaps you'll see a loving father who's just correcting you. He's wanting to get sin out of your life. He's wanting to take you somewhere radical like to Nineveh where revival could take place, but you're going in the complete opposite direction. Don't make him get the whale out. Don't make him get the bit out. Don't make him bring a storm of correction. Another storm that we see in scripture are storms of perfection. And flip to Mark chapter four, verse 35. Mark 4.35 says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they left the multitudes, they took him along in the boat as he was. Other, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing He arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? They feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we see here that the Lord can use storms to perfect, to perfect our faith as God didn't say in this passage, let us go to the middle of the lake and sink and drown. But he said to them, let us go to the other side. And so halfway across the lake, they're panicking and they think they're going to die. And they think that Jesus cares nothing of them. And the Lord rebukes them on the level of their faith. And it's really a teachable moment for them. That even in the midst of the trials and the situations and the circumstances, hold fast to the word of the Lord. Know that the Lord is doing something. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we're to count it all joy when we fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the trials and the storms that we go through, the Lord uses them to refine us. The Lord uses them to perfect us. The Lord uses them to strengthen our faith. It's been said that the storms of life will either make you bitter or better. And if you've got your eyes on yourself and on your situation in the midst of the storm, you'll be bitter. If you get your eyes on Jesus, 
You'll be made better through it. You look at David and Saul, and Lindsay and I are currently reading through the life of um, David and King Saul. And just how Saul just ruthlessly pursued David. You know, we see that God uses Saul in David's life to make, to make David a broken man who's constantly in need of the Lord and the Lord's protection, you know, and the Lord's favor. He's just, con- you read the Psalms and he's just writing about his enemies the whole time. He's writing about Saul chasing him down. He's writing about, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you to be my strong tower. Lord, I need you to be my strength. Lord, I need you to do this to my enemies. And if he hadn't been going through those trials, if it was always just perfect, calm seas, then we would see a way different David by the end of his life. The Lord was refining David, even through the man Saul and this this harsh personality, this hard man in David's life, a guy that wanted to kill him. And in the midst of the trial you're in at work or with the coworker or whatever, man, the, the Lord's using that person in your life. My mom always called these people sandpaper people, you know, because they just rub you and they polish you and they polish those fine edges off. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but we see that the Lord uses these trials, the Lord uses these storms to, to perfect and to know that he's sovereignly working in the midst of it. Who knows what he's doing behind the scenes? As Job says in chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. You know, as as Paul and Luke and Aristarchus are on the ship destined for the bottom of the sea, it would appear. I know Paul trusted him. I know Paul trusted the Lord. Even if the Lord were to slay me right now, I trust him. You know, even if he'd slay me right now, he's going to get me to Rome in one way or another. Perhaps my dead corpse is going to be what's talking to Caesar Nero. I don't know. But in the same way that Abraham knew that God could raise up Isaac, you know, God's able to raise that. Whatever you do, Lord, you could kill me right now. I trust you. You're in control. You're sovereign. You're directing us where we want to be. And so through those storms of perfection, don't get so frustrated with the inconvenience of the storm that you're not open to do what the Lord wants you to do or to see what the Lord's working in you. So storms of correction, storms of perfection. What kind of storm is Paul in here? Perhaps Paul's in the third storm, the final storm, a storm of destruction. Perhaps this storm is even satanic. And it's an attempt by Satan to silence Paul so that he can't get to Rome, really the gateway to the world, with the good news of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's a spiritual storm. And as you remember back to Mark chapter 4, when Jesus was asleep on the pillow and the disciples woke him up, it says that Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. And all the Greek dictionaries from Weiss to A.T. Robertson say that it's the same language used when rebuking a demonic spirit. And immediately the storm stopped and the water was calm. So perhaps this was a satanic effort to prevent Paul from going to Rome. And so look at the storm that you're in. Perhaps the enemy is really trying to destroy you as you're seeking to be salt and to be light in this dark world. You know, 
Could we all attest that, you know, probably some of the worst family conflict is on a Sunday morning when you're on your way to church? You know, does anybody bear witness with that? I had two sisters growing up, and that seemed to be when we fought the most, was in the, the van on the way to church, you know? Like, of course there's going to be attack. Of course there's going to be, you know, as you're going on a missions trip, there's warfare. Perhaps the Lord is wanting to do something great in you, and the enemy is out to steal and kill and destroy In Revelation, his name is Abaddon, and that means destroyer. And he wants to just ravage your life, whether that's through spiritual warfare, and and you need to put the, the armor on every day, as Ephesians 6 tells us, so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil. Or perhaps it's through temptation. That he's just bringing these things across you. He's, he's tempting you with sin. And you're falling into that sin. You're yielding to that sin. The drugs. And the alcohol. And the extramarital relationships. And if you're falling into those things, be not mistaken. The enemy is destroying your life. You are destroying your life. And there's a reason that you're in a storm. Because of sin. But the good news is, you can take heart. You can be encouraged. Because the whole plan of Satan with the cross was to destroy the Son of God, wasn't it? It was to pin him to that tree so that it would all be over and Jesus lost. But we know that that wasn't the case, was it? It was through Jesus being pinned to the tree that the greatest victory ever came. That through the shedding of one man's blood, the whole world could be forgiven of sin. And as Joseph recognized in Genesis chapter 50, I believe it is, that what the Lord, or excuse me, what his brothers desired for destruction, God intended for good. And the Lord is able to turn the tide and he's able to change the direction of things. He's able to use these storms, even storms of sin, for his glory. That you might come to the cross where the greatest victory was ever won. That you might fall on your face before Jesus and confess your sins before him and be forgiven of your sins. That you'd repent and turn from your sins and that you would receive the Holy Spirit of promise into your heart. That you could have the power to live for him in the midst of this ungodly age. You could live a life worthy of the gospel. And God will take those years of drug use, you know, the the multiple affairs, the divorce. And he, in in his own way, (laughs) it might take a while, it might be instant. He will restore the years that the locusts have eaten in your life. And so different storms, what kind of storm was Paul in? Perhaps the enemy was trying to destroy him in the storm. Perhaps the, you know, perhaps the Lord was trying to refine him in the storm. But we see that Paul had opportunity to testify. You know, as, as he stood up and he kind of gives an I told you so speech, you know, in verse 21. I told you not to go on in this water. But he says, but take heart. An angel of the Lord has appeared to me. And he said this, you're going to make it to Rome and you're going to testify to Caesar. 
And also I've granted all these lives with you. They're going to make it. And he was able to say that. And as two weeks go by without food and in a storm, can you imagine in a hurricane, two weeks goes by, the ship is wrecked. They're on driftwood. And every single one of them survives the shipwreck. What do you want to bet that the 276 people on the ship remembered back to when Paul stood up boldly on a tossing deck and said, you all will make it alive. An angel of the God whom I serve told me. This storm in Paul's life turned out as an occasion for testimony. And so whether you're going through a storm of correction and the Lord has his spanking spoon out and he's paddling your rear end, you know, and he's saying, turn from your sin. Do I need to get the bit and the bridle out? You can turn from your sin today and you can have an occasion for testimony. And you can tell people, man, I was a disobedient guy. Think of a friend of mine, 13 years of meth addiction. And he responded to the call of God, the the call of the Holy Spirit on his heart and has been forgiven and has been restored. An occasion for testimony. You're going through a time of refinement. You're going through a storm of perfection. An occasion for testimony to testify of God's glory and his faithfulness and his sovereignty. Look for it. Get your eyes off of yourself and get your eyes onto him and look for that occasion. And look in the midst of perhaps a storm of destruction and cry out today as we close in prayer, as we close in worship. You might just recognize, Rory, when you said a storm of destruction, that the enemy was just, you know, he's destroying my life. and It's sin that's destroying my life. It's me. The devil didn't make me do it, you know, but it's, it's obviously fruit of satanic at heart. Just recognize that and say, Lord, I want to repent of this stuff. This bringing a storm of destruction into my life. Let's go ahead and put our things aside. We're going to have the prayer team come forward. And man, if there's if you're in the midst, you're just tossed to and fro. You just perhaps you're despairing even of life. You have given up all hope of being saved. Maybe you're just in that storm of destruction and. You've given up all hope of being saved. Your marriage. You're done with your marriage today. Your relationship with your kids. It's done. There's no hope. You're suicidal. Whatever it might be. Your addiction. There's hope. There's hope in the Lord. And he is gracious today and he is merciful. Man, if you're just, you're just being thrashed, we want to pray for you today. We're going to have the prayer team up here and you just come forward and we'd love to pray for you. Maybe you see just the, the depths and the heights that Paul went to carry the gospel and man, just you just long to have that heart and Man, I just, I ask for forgiveness. Just, I didn't mean for any of the way I was talking to be 
condemning or just nothing. Just been the heart of a pastor to just spur on his congregation to live sold out for Jesus and to be like Paul. And man, I just confess, I'm I'm not a Paul, but I want to be. And so, man, just forgive me if I offended you, but let's, man, let's let's go all out. Let's cry out today in this song that the Lord would just pour out his spirit on us and just let us just go to the highways and the byways and to not be ashamed. To not be ashamed. Even if it means going through a torrential storm. Let's cry out for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us be like Paul in that. Let's close with this song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378 Prineville, Oregon, 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.